Welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. We bring you free-flowing conversations with top thought leaders in philanthropy and the nonprofit sector. Sit back, relax, listen and enjoy as we share ideas and discuss topics that are important, timely, and we hope will transform the nonprofit world. Hello, and welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. This is episode 13, recorded Thursday, April the 5th, 2018. I'm Vincent Duckworth. I'm a fundraiser and a partner with Vitreo Group. We are a national agency focused on bold leadership and transformative fundraising. In this episode, our fourth of the year, we will be speaking with Dr. Tony Myers, Principal and Senior Fundraising Counsel with Myers & Associates in Edmonton, Jay Love, Chief Relationship Officer and Co-Founder of Blue Meringue, John Gormley, Senior Analytics and Insights Officer at McMaster University in Hamilton, and Kathy Mann, President of Kathy Mann & Associates in Toronto. Our topic, Evidence Matters, Why the Nonprofit Sector Needs to Embrace Research. The question and central theme of today's podcast is, does our sector and our profession actually embrace and support research? Is there enough of it occurring? Is it accessible? Does it matter? And what is the actual state of research in our sector? We've brought together four leaders, each an acknowledged authority in nonprofit research, to help us understand just how to best answer these questions and more. Join us as we discuss the future of research coming up next on Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. We have four amazing guests with us today, all leaders in the sector. They're excited to be here. I'm excited to be here. Let's get started. Joining us from Edmonton, we have my friend and longtime mentor, Tony Myers. Tony and I have known each other longer than we have both been fundraisers. I first met Tony when I was an engineering student, and he was the director of public affairs at the University of Alberta. That was more than 25 years ago. Over the years, we have worked together both at the U of A and at the University of Calgary. We've also worked together as consultants to help bring the National Music Center to life. Tony, we've been trying to have you on this podcast for a while now. I'm thrilled to have you with us here today. Welcome. Vinny, it's good to be here. Thank you. What uh, what many people don't know is that in addition to being a great fundraising professional, Tony has both a law degree and a PhD. In fact, Tony earned his PhD only a few years ago. Tony, I'm, I'm wondering if you can share with our listeners a bit about why you decided to get your doctorate relatively late in life. Oh, what a great question, Vince. Um, the decision was prompted by um, an experience I had at St. Mary's University in Minnesota, and, and I went to school there, did my master's in philanthropy and development, and it was a, just a, an absolutely fantastic experience. And and as a result of that, I wanted to put together a, a program in Canada. I wanted to have a master's program in Canada, and, and I wanted uh, Canadians to be able to study in this country and, and learn what I was so fortunate to learn while uh, studying in the United States. And so I worked together with a group of people, including Guy Malibone, and um, and we got together a committee uh, from East and Western Canada and uh, uh, looked at universities across the country that we could sell the idea of establishing a graduate program of philanthropy development in the country. And my motivation for going to school was this. I wanted to be able to walk in the front door of any university in the country and go to the office of the president and sit down and say, you should have a program here in philanthropy and development. And in the academic environment, it's hard to get respect unless you have PhD behind your name. And I'd love to learn, 
but that was the key motivator for me to establish a, and get a PhD, which I was able to get in 2011. And since then, we established a program in Canada is now at Carleton University, which is which which is uh, really exciting. And 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 real credit goes to all the people who were involved in this process um, um, across the country. It was it was a, it was an amazing ex- experience. Thank you for that, Tony. And, and, and I know. The, go ahead. The irony, the irony, Vinny, the irony is, I didn't need the PhD to make this happen. <laughs> <laughs> so, so did you? So did you go darn, or what? What did you do? <laughs> no, I think you always wanted to achieve that. That's great. Congratulations. Thanks, Tony. Also joining us this morning from Toronto is Kathy Mann. This is Kathy's second appearance on our podcast. She first joined us for episode eight back in November. Kathy, welcome back. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Kathy, uh, we did not talk, talk much about it last time, but I know you are, in addition to your many other talents and roles, an instructor at Ryerson University's Fundraising Management Program, and that you've been doing this work for a number of years. I'm, I'm curious, and you know, it ties into what Tony talked a little bit about. I'm curious what changes, if any, you've noticed in this program from when you started to now. Yeah, well, I started teaching in the program in 2003, and I became the academic coordinator in 2008. So there have been a lot of changes. Uh, Most notably, in 2008, I took all of the courses that had previously only been offered in class and uh, turned them into online courses. So obviously that's a, um, you know, a, a, a huge trend that continues to to grow. So the online piece is is an important one. In fact, we're seeing much more registration in online courses than we are in class. Part of that is due to the fact that our students come from across the country. So, you know, there are a number of students who are not able to attend in class, but we're seeing a growing registration in in online. And I I think uh, it's great that we can democratize education that way. Uh, other changes that I'm seeing in education, we well, in in terms of today's topic, we are seeing, um, and and I'm talking with my instructors about making sure that we are incorporating more and more research into the uh, the, the classes that we're teaching. So I would say that when I first started teaching 15 years ago at Ryerson, in fact, taught at Algonquin even before that, but you know um back in the day we didn't incorporate a lot of research into the uh the topics that we were teaching our students and increasingly now we're seeing uh, textbooks that have uh, more research incorporated into them and access to um articles and, and research so that students are leaving not just with the Wisdom uh, th- that uh, that we have learned from uh, our forefathers and foremothers, but also it's being corroborated by research. That's awesome. You know, changing these uh, in-classroom courses to online courses is a huge effort. Tell um, me about it. <laughs> so, so put a pin in that. I want to I want to circle back to the research piece when we get into the the topic proper. But thanks, Kathy, for being here. Our um, our third panelist is Jay Love. Jay is the chief relationship officer and found and co-founder of Bloomerang. Jay, thank you for agreeing to join uh, join us today. We're excited to have you as part of this discussion. Welcome. 
Well, glad to be here and be among such an esteemed group also. Thank you. <laughs> Until last week, I, I don't think we ever met in person or talked in person, but your reputation and the reputation of Bloomerang are well known to me and to our entire sector. Uh, Jay, uh, you're known for many things, not least of which is your passion for new technology for fundraisers. Uh, Jay, one of those areas that you've been especially prominent in recent years has been with the Fundraising Effectiveness Project. I'm wondering if you could take a few minutes to tell us, our listeners, just what that project is about and also what's its current status? Okay, good. Glad to bring you up to date on that, and thanks for the kind words. Uh, the Fundraising Effectiveness Project was sort of the brainchild of some of the people associated with the Urban Institute in Washington, D.C. The Urban Institute, as you know, is a bit of a think tank and uh, pulling together a lot of stats, figures, and analysis for the nonprofit sector. And one of the folks closely affiliated with that uh, gave me a call uh, nine years ago this June, and I still remember it fondly because I was outside and my cell phone rang and uh, this person called and said, uh, are you Jay Love? And I said, yes. I said, how'd you get my number? And he goes, well, it seems to be readily apparent, uh, apparent to everybody what your cell phone number is. I said, well, that's good in a way. And he goes, I've been talking to people and everybody sort of agrees that you may be the only person that could get all of the database vendors to share their data into a common pool so that we could pull statistics much like every other industry and every other sector does. I mean, we know how many cars are sold every month and quarter, or how many refrigerators are sold, how many uh, smartphones are sold, etc. But we have no real idea of what's happening uh, regarding philanthropy and the dollars raised and dollars retained and things of that nature. And I said, well... I told her his name was Bill. I said, Bill, I'm not sure I could get those vendors together for a free dinner, let alone to share data, but let's give it a shot and see. And it took us about 24 months to make that happen, but we now have several of the prominent vendors sharing anonymized data. It's totally anonymous data so that we know exactly what dollars are raised from different segments and, more importantly, some of the data surrounding the donor engagement, donor retention, and et cetera, and it's published now every quarter, and it, you'll see it through not only the Fundraising Effectiveness website, but also through the Association of Fundraising Professionals website, and also uh, references to it through the Urban Institute. Wow. About time. What a big project. Yes, uh, it has uh, been, and I think we're just starting to see the relevance coming to the forefront. People are starting to say, wow. Uh, national organizations, for instance, you know, like the American Red Cross or the Boys and Girls Clubs or groups like that, how does our fundraising at each of the chapter locations or each of our individual city and state locations compare to national averages and where should we improve, where, to, where should we pat ourselves on the back, et cetera. So it's starting to really gain traction going forward now. We need to come up with a fancy name for it. Uh, fundraising Effectiveness Project is a great name. But as a, you know, you need like a national philanthropy index or something. Yes. You know, something so, so of that nature. Or comes, comes out a little, uh, bit some, yeah, a little, some official thing, you know, it'll be a, an index in the paper. I love it. Maybe we need a, maybe we need a naming contest. <laughs> we, could, we could start that right. here on your podcast. Uh, well, it, it, I think it can have some legs. All right, listeners, you, you heard it from Jay. Start it off. So, uh, thanks, Jay. Rounding out our panel today is John Gormley. John, like Kathy, is not a stranger to our podcast. John 
joined us for our data science episode back in October. John, welcome back. Appreciate you having me back on. John, you recently stepped up to a new role, both for you and for McMaster. Your your new title is Senior Analytics and Insights Officer. We want to know, what is this role about? Can you share with us some of the thinking and also some of the hopes for this new direction uh, at McMaster? Yeah, so the goal of the role is to be a, a partner in growth for all of the university advancement. So we're going to be working with the, uh, the different teams to uh, to see what type of information they're currently leveraging and taking a look to see if uh, we could be leveraging it um, a bit differently. Is there other information sources we could be uh, we could be using using? And really, the end goal is just to to empower them in their roles as much as possible. So a big piece of that being uh, building upon our, uh, our frontline capabilities. So we're going to be doing like Excel training, um, business intelligence 101, uh, just kind of getting people uh, to have a firm understanding of. Uh, the types of tools and solutions uh, that are at their fingertips, and uh, and seeing what we can develop from there. Is the title related to some of the the um, kind of the, where we are in terms of the world around uh, you know these these uh, these algorithms and the big data and even the word analytics in a title is is interesting, especially in fundraising. I would suggest. Yeah, so it is going along that uh, that lines, and the insights being. Uh, I mean, you can do um, as much analysis as you want, but if it's not providing insight into uh, to the question you're trying to answer, it's worthless. So um, I, I think the pairing of those two really does emphasize um, both um, the actual process of it as well as the, uh, the desired result. Okay. Well, thanks, John. I know you've been doing some research, too, and we'll probably hear a little bit more about that later on some of the things you've been working on. So thanks for joining us. Thank you. Okay, let's get started. Thank you all for joining us on this, our 13th podcast. Today's topic is Evidence Matters, Why the Nonprofit Sector Needs to Embrace Research. Before we get to the topic of research, I want to speak to the question of what defines a profession. By that, I mean if if fundraising is calling itself a profession, and it is, what are some of the foundational elements that make it a profession? Well, uh, you need an educational framework, and we've heard a little bit about that, by which professionals can be trained. We have that, and it's a growing resource. You need a credential, certainly, and we have that with CFRE and, and ACFRE and, and, and a few others. You need a code of ethics, and we have that with the AFP Code of Ethical Standards. And you need a body of research about and related to the profession. The question and central theme of today's podcast is, does our sector and our profession actually embrace and support research? Is there enough of it occurring? Is it accessible? Does it matter? What is the actual state of research in our sector? Kathy, I'm going to put you on the spot first. Let's start with you. What are some of your thoughts on the questions I just asked? Well, I think that research is surprisingly available. So I was at a the Governor General held a conference in April that I was at, and I was shocked to see a number of pro-social scientists who were there who were doing research about philanthropy. So the the research is there. It's not easy for us to access because it's done from so many different disciplines. So you're finding research about philanthropy from neuroscience and behavioral economics and pro-social scientists and marketing and psychology and sociology, you, you name it. So from that perspective, it's not easy to, to pin down. And I would say that the, that it's, 
the, there's a huge gap between the research that exists and practitioners being able to access that research. Um, and moreover, the research that's coming out from the, from the academics isn't necessarily accessible for us as practitioners. So we're, you know, it's unlikely that we're going to pour over hundreds of pages of uh, someone's dissertation to learn about um, something in our sector. So, so I think the, the, the gap is um, how do we curate it some, somewhere centrally and uh, B, how do we make it accessible so that practitioners who are busy will have the opportunity to, you know, read the thumbnail sketch of new research and, and then they can go deeper into it if they, um, if they identify that it can be applied to their, to their work. Right. So it sounds like there's lots of it there. It's just not necessarily, uh, we're not able to reach into it. What are some thoughts from the rest of the panel? Sorry, Kathy, if this you have more Jay. to add. Go ahead. Jay? Yeah, this is Jay, and um, I, I have to agree with Kathy that there's more and more research that's becoming available. I think what we have to make sure is that the proper rigorous academic standards and sort of scientific research standards are applied to, because you, you, you go to conferences, and, and sometimes there's research that's been conducted by uh, vendors or consultants, and it hasn't you know, fit the bill as, as being, being totally rigorous in every aspect so it can be proven. Um, you know, presentations aren't vetted for their ability to be that. So uh, much if you think about the medical in, uh, societies or uh, the engineering sector or things of that nature where there's a true body of knowledge, you don't get to present your new findings unless it meets those rigors to do that, and I think that's where the philanthropy world has to start drawing some guidelines to do that because there is some research that's doing that, and uh, that would be most welcome because so much of what's been done in philanthropy has just been sort of handed down from consultants from one or the other, and it's based upon tradition and, and what worked in the past, not necessarily on true scientific research. Vince, may I add something to Jay's comment? Please do, Kathy. Um, Jay, I'm so glad you said that. Uh, the AFP Congress in Toronto this year is offering, for the first time, a research track, and I'm chairing that research track. And Excellent. we were having those conversations, Jay, um, what what constitutes research? Uh, are we only going to accept, you know, academic quality research for, for this research track? And, and for this uh, first year, that is our goal, to have research that has been conducted by um, academics and has, you know, rigorous standards uh, applied to it. That would be outstanding, Kathy. It will be interesting to see who makes the, who passes the criteria and who doesn't because, uh, uh, you know, there there is, there are some vast differences out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, we, you know, we... Um, are going to keep it small in this first year because we want to make sure that we um, are able to offer up uh, the kind of research that has had that those rigorous standards applied to it. Awesome. Tony, you've sat on the International AFP Research Committee, uh, and others around the table may have as well. What are your thoughts uh, on some of the questions I raised and what Kathy and Jay have had to say? 
I'm I'm intrigued by the the whole issue of uh, of academic rigor, and and I think that's a challenge in 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 our profession. Um, I'm also intrigued by the sense that that academic rigor can only come from academics, which which I would argue against. I think that the most important research actually being done in the sector is 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 that research that's being done by what I would call academic practitioners. Uh, one of the challenges that that I think Kathy mentioned is that we don't get uh, or aren't able to get or we're challenged to get academic research to the practitioner. Um, that's often because the academic research is is a bit too esoteric. Um, if we just want a, to get just a, ac- just a bit, just a bit. <laughs> if we want to get academic research uh, to practitioners, then we have to do research that are relevant for practitioners, and and I think that's why uh, um, it, it becomes increasingly important to to combine the two sets of skills. One is is, is a practitioner, and the other is an academic. In in terms of of of, of research in in the profession, I you know I think all of us have seen an incredible amount of writing being done um, over the past uh, 10 or 15 years. If we wanted to look at philanthropy 10 or 15 years ago, there was almost, uh, there was very little available in the marketplace in terms of of, of uh, even even a body of knowledge. Um, and, 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 and if there was a body of knowledge, it hadn't been recorded or documented. So the increase in body of knowledge over, over the period of time has been uh, significant. And I guess my final comment would be that um, um, I, I'm not sure, uh, and I understand the question, Vinny, that, that we're talking about research in the profession and, and what's the role of research in the profession. And I think the deeper question is what is the role of deep thinking in the profession? Because it's through mm. deep thinking that we create the research questions and, and it's through deep thinking that we are able to identify the research that needs to be done. And, and, and my final comment is that, that there needs to be an environment that rewards and applauds and encourages research. And in the, in the practitioner environment in which I work on a daily basis, there is increasing pressure from boards and from CEOs to just get it done. Raise more money. Forget about anything else. Just get it done. So if we want to have more research, if we want to get more knowledge, we have to start encouraging CEOs and boards to give, I think, practitioners and people involved in practicing our profession the time and they need to do the research in creating the environment which rewards deep thinking uh, deep knowledge and 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 uh and uh and and bringing together uh, the kind of information we need to do the kind of work that Jay alluded to. Tony, I want to circle back to that uh, about how do we encourage those folks in a minute, but just before we do that, you, know, you use the word academic practitioner and we've actually got a great example more than one on the panel, but I'm going to turn it to John Gormley in Hamilton. He, he, John, you're you're actually you, you, you were actually doing or about to release some pretty significant research um, on, I think, impact investing. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, we uh, we have the practitioner report 
uh, coming out in uh, the April EWIRE. And our academic paper, I submitted one to my professor last year, and we're hopefully going to be uh, getting that published sometime this year. Nice. So what what barriers have you seen, um, uh, or, or, or were there any, to, to moving this research along in our profession? I think for, the, for me, at least, when I was doing the academic research, the biggest barrier that I encountered was how digestible the, uh, the information was. So it, it takes some time to, uh, to learn how to read through an academic paper as they are so dense. So that would definitely be one of the biggest challenges in getting research in, uh, in the hands of uh, practitioners, uh, the other being uh, that there's paid walls. Um, so actually, Tony mentioned a really important thing of uh, what is the role of deep thinking in the other profession. I, I think that's a, like that hits the, uh, the nail on the head there. Uh, Ray Dalio actually uh, says um, you want to create a culture where there's independent thinking. So that's just not you know, hearing it and, and taking that uh, for granted, that's um, hearing a piece of information and questioning it and then testing it and seeing if it holds true um, just based on your uh, your measurement of, uh, of, that, uh, of that fact. So that's definitely something that we want to be pushing forward. Um, so I, I want to thank you for bringing that up, Tony. Can I just pick up on that, Vinny? I think um, one of the examples, John, and, and, and I'm glad that it resonated with you, but one of the examples that, that really drives this whole idea home um, uh, is, is sports. And, and, and in the sporting world, uh, it, it, it was as if it woke up 10 or 15 or 20 years ago and started to do deep thinking and deep research uh, in in the area of, of of performance excellence, and as a result of that, there has been the creation of teams and movies made about it. There's been creation of teams that have performed exceptionally well based on the research that was done on performance. And so it it, it seems to me that 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 again, our profession needs to develop a culture of of. As, as you said, John, deep thinking and, and a willingness to do that deep thinking and then gather the data associated with that deep thinking, asking those tough questions and going after the answers that will improve performance. And what's ironic, what's so ironic for me is, again, CEOs and, 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 and boards who are demanding more money, more money, more money, more, more quicker, 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 faster, 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 but aren't willing to take the time to figure out how we improve that performance, how we might raise money more quickly, how we might raise more money. And that only is going to come from deep thinking and deep analysis and, 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 I, and I think really looking at the tough questions and finding out the facts, the facts, not the assumptions, but the facts before we start acting. So um, I'm glad that resonated with you. Thanks, Danny. I think that movie was Powerball, wasn't it? Was it Powerball or Moneyball? Or? Yeah. Yeah. Now, Jay. Jay. Um, yes. You know, it, 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 it sounds like we, you started that process or were asked to start that process with, with uh, things that you've been doing in other areas, including the fundraising effectiveness projects. Were there some learnings once that happened that were kind of like, wow, uh, there was no way we could have known that until we did this uh, in, in bringing these databases together? Right. It, it, it brought insights that you just could not uncover any other way. 
before I further address that, I wanted to mention one other thing. I, I love your thoughts on uh, applying deeper thinking and analysis and stuff to this, but um, I, I think one of the factors that we can't ignore is the immense need for funding of this research. Uh, for that, uh, that is, uh, research, properly, do, properly done research, uh, according, and it doesn't have to be done by academics, obviously. People can follow academic and scientific research standards from all walks of life, and I, I hope they do. But to do that properly and to have proper, uh, database sizes and, and, and statistical, uh, relevance does require funding, and I'm hoping that maybe there's a foundation or two or uh, other uh, key individuals that are listening to this podcast that would have a great interest in saying, wow, I would like to fund the research of knowing, should we mail donors, uh, should we mail appeals to donors 12 times a year or 15 times a year, or is that going to actually have negative effects? Right, and back it up with evidence. Yes, and, you know, and the research, but that's only going to happen if funding happens because proper research is not done economically. And, and, and allow me, allow me, uh, was that John speaking? That was Jay. It was Jay. Jay, uh, allow me, Jay. And, and, and again, uh, it seems to me that, you know, it's a kind of a chicken and egg uh, question uh, or a chicken egg discussion. Do, you know, do we get the money and do the research or do, I would argue that, again, it starts with deep thinking. You have to do deep thinking to put together the, the research proposal. You need to do the deep thinking to do the research, uh, 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 to, to outline the kind of research you want, and do the deep thinking about t- determining where that can be funded. So I'm not disagreeing at all. I mean, I, I fully agree that we need the money to do that. But but I don't think it starts with the money. It starts with the deep thinking and, and the research question. And if we can think it and document it, and write it, I think then we can do it. And the challenge, yes, is to find the money. I can't agree more. Doesn't hurt uh, I would to put like it out, to... In, out into the market. Go ahead, Kathy. Well, one of the things, um, so I had some interesting conversations with some pro-social scientists who had done some research on philanthropy, and um, I was fascinated to learn about, you know, what they were doing and how they got into it. And I, I, one of my um, questions was, you know, who were you, uh, what practitioners were you um, involved with? And they said something really interesting. They're like, wow, we would love to have fundraisers more involved with us as we're doing our research. And I thought, so you're doing this research on philanthropy without involving practitioners. So it's back to your point, Tony, about having academic practitioners. And while there may be uh, a handful of those uh, academic practitioners who exist right now in philanthropy, I think the one of the pieces that's missing is collaboration. So how do we, um, as a sector, engage with those people who are conducting research so that we can benefit from both of our worlds coming together? Good point. It might be related to funding, actually. we I've seen some some of this um, in the marketplace spurred on by um, somebody stepping up with some funding, which then these um, – and Kathy, can you define what you mean by pro-social? I think I know, but I don't want to presume. What does a pro, the word pro-social mean? Pardon me. Um, oh, I'm not sure that I can define it, to be honest. Okay. But, okay. Yeah. It's just not a term I'm familiar totally with. So I just – do you mean by social scientists? Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. 
Um, so I have seen, obviously, research spurred on by folks putting money up that then attracts uh, these, these social scientists, and then hopefully it would be nice if we could pair that with a practitioner. Um, but there's certainly not a lot of it uh, going on. I'm wondering if we can circle back with um, uh, your comment made earlier, Kathy, about curation. I mean, is there some inroads being made in this? Is, are there people out there trying to actually start to, to, to bridge that gap in terms of accessibility? And I don't mean stuff that's behind the paywall necessarily, although that's part of it, but more about how do you get it into a digestible format that people can say, oh, that's important. I, as uh, Yes, I think there are a lot of conversations that are taking place. And I know that the AFP Greater Toronto Chapter is starting to do some work on um, attempting to curate research, and it's in the very, very early stages and the very early discussions, but I know that they have a, um, a, a focus on that. And I hear it being talked about and I'm involved in some conversations with some other groups uh, who are looking at this, but it, um, it at this point is still in discussion phase. Okay. So that's the, the thought process in Canada. And uh, Jay, is there, are there some resources that are um, available in the U.S. that are opening up that people can go to that are kind of a, a curated portal on, on uh, research that you're aware of? Well, there the two main sources of, of uh, pretty rigorous research that I've had the most association with is with the uh, IU Lilly School of Philanthropy and their their research arm that they've done. They, many people are aware of their one of their premier ones is the Giving USA that's uh, that's done. Mm -hmm. I hate to mention that when we have so many Canadians on the line, but uh, I apologize for that. But uh, and then of course. Uh, Dr. Adrian Sargent and his work, uh, who was previously with the uh, School of Philanthropy, who now is with the Regari Institute that's based in the UK, um, uh, has conducted many research projects, and all of those are published through both of their uh, uh, websites, and you can reach out and find that information to that. So those, those are the two most prominent I've had uh, uh, experience with myself. Okay. I think it's that notion of curation, though, like, you know, is wouldn't it be wonderful if there was a central repository where you could go and and find some of this stuff? Because the research is being done by so many different disciplines, it's it's not easy to um, to find it. And then and then make it accessible, um, as Tony mentioned in, in his comments earlier. You know, one example of that, and and um, I heard uh, somebody mention. Uh, uh, Adrian Sargent. Uh, Adrian's uh, probably one of the most prolific researchers and writers in in the field, and I think one of the most prolific researchers and writers in the entire world. And and uh, and his work actually is quite digestible. Um, yes, I think that he uh, is is uh, an example of bringing together. Um, um, a, a a practitioner, a, a a academic and practitioner. And while I I am unsure about how much practice Adrian does, I know that he speaks at conferences around the world. I know that he speaks at fundraising conferences, and that he translates his material into into digestible information. And um, um, but what a great example! He just uh, is highly regarded and respected globally. And I'll also give. Give uh, props to Jen Shang, who is also. Um, um, thank you, thank you. She, uh, agreed, agreed. 
what's her title? She is a philanthropic psychologist. Um, yes, and uh, has brought many of those disciplines into their research, and it's, and they are so uh, well done and, and so easily digestible that any fundraiser would certainly benefit from uh, reading into some of those things. Now, did you say Jen Shang? Yes. yes. And where's 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 Jen based? She's she and she me. and go ahead. Uh, she and she she and Adrian are married. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Thank you. Sorry, I was I wasn't sure if they were linked, and uh, and I, yeah, I want to make sure. They are part of part of the Regari Institute there in uh, in Plymouth in the UK. No problem. I'll be sending Regari a bill for the advertisement. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. I love what they're doing, and in fact, AFP Canada is working with uh, with uh, with another Regari individual. I think Ian McQuillan on um on yes. some big projects nationally here as well. So we're thrilled with that organization um and I'm so glad that, that we talked about them. I'm wondering if we um I'm happy to talk about any other issues that people want to talk about, but I wanted to circle back for a second, unless you want to push me off this, about what what would it take to get people uh our our leadership to pay more attention to evidence. I, I think that um uh you know that this idea that uh raise more money, just raise more money just raise more money um, uh, is is such a uh, a push against us uh, digging in around evidence. Um, so I, I would like some conversation about that if we could. Uh, what what can we do? And you know, uh, John, I'm going to pick on you, right? You you've, you've been sitting in the corner listening, I know. And and uh, what what do you think we should be doing with our leadership to get them to think more positively about research? I think we should be looking at the biggest companies in the world and how they're succeeding. So look at Amazon. Jeff Bezos says that most of their success is attributed to successful experiments. And the purpose of a test is to be the control. So if you're looking for something that beats the status quo, you got to take some shots like that. So do A-B testing um, and really just creating an environment that fosters innovation. But part of that is embracing failure. So, uh, risks, uh, ex- experiments are inherently risky. So as long as they're of the understanding that there could potentially be some costs with it, uh, the, uh, the reward could be, uh, quite great if, uh, some of those pay off. Right. What about the and rest I guess of you? I, yeah, I'd like to ahead, just, Kathy. yeah, um, I think that what I really want to see, I, I work in, uh, social change and social justice and I work with a lot of small and, and emerging, uh, and medium-sized organizations. And so one of the things that I would love to see is for the bigger organizations to do some of this research because the, the, you know, organizations that, um, uh, are medium-sized even really don't have the budget to be looking at research. So, at, you know, one of the things that I say to my clients is look at what the big guys are doing and let's figure out how we can adapt it to our environment. So, you know, we know the stats are that, imagine Canada has a, a stat that 60% of all donations go to 1% of all charities. So I look to the 1% of those charities to be leaders in this area so that the rest of the sector can learn from them. Kathy, I uh, I want to pick up on that and 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 say that uh, I agree, and, and, but there's another element that, that that reason why we need to look at the big guys. Um, in smaller organizations, uh, one of the most difficult challenges that a fundraiser or a fundraising director 
will face in, in, in a small organization is access to decision making and access to the CEO, access to the board, and being positioned properly within their own organization. That doesn't seem to be the case in the larger organizations. In larger organizations, they know and understand and appreciate the outstanding value that their, their, their development shop, their fundraising shop, their philanthropy enterprise uh, brings to the organization. And so they don't have difficulty in getting to the decision-making table and, and getting access to the kind of funds they need to do that kind of research. And that's not a, you know, completely true, but it, certainly it's, it's much easier for the big guys to do it than it is for uh, small or medium-sized uh, NGO enterprises. That's a great point. Sounds like we need to, to, uh, to be thinking about who are some of the leading philanthropic organizations out there, whether they're big uh, health organizations or universities or cultural institutions or human services um, spaces that could take a, a really strong role in not only raising more money, but also supporting research in a very public way. Um, that, that sounds like an interesting piece. I really like what you had to say about taking a page out of um, the big companies of the world, like Amazon, et cetera. John. Thoughts? Uh, go ahead. Someone's, someone's thinking. Well, I, 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 <laughs> uh, I can't help but break in here. Uh, you know, I've had an opportunity to work in, in three or four high institutions of higher education. And, and one of the institutions of higher education I was working in, I did a piece of research as a, as a, as a, as a practitioner. This research was professionally done, um, and, 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 uh, uh, very, very professionally done. And, and as part of the administration in a major educational institution in this country, it was poo-pooed by leaders in that organization because they didn't like it. <laughs> well, Tony, I mean, even academics have blind spots. <laughs> I, so, so my point, my my point in all of this is that if we're going to do academic research. It's got to start in the places like McMaster University, like the University of Toronto, like like the like like the University of uh, Calgary, Alberta, and 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 UBC. It has to start at the at, at the big universities across the country. Um, I'm thrilled to hear that 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 there's a analytic insights at McMaster University, and and that's so exciting to hear. But my God. It's 2018. <laughs> and how long has McMaster been doing uh, outstanding, by the way, outstanding uh, fundraising? Um, so I think it, number one, has to start at universities, uh, and particularly those with, with big shops at universities, and, and they need to take a role. Uh, so that's that's number one. Secondly, it it, it 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 has to go to the the big shops across the country and that includes um uh, that includes you know um as a kids hospital in toronto comes to mind uh, uh who who uh, where there is an outstanding again enterprise a philanthropic enterprise so it has to it has to come from the big shops but it has to be i believe it has to be led by by universities across the country who work in in that milieu and 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 it always you know it's the kind of shoemaker's son is always the person who doesn't have any shoes, 
And, and I don't know how you get it started in universities and maybe, you know, the work that John is doing now and, and, and analytic insights is a, is a good starting point and maybe it grows from there, but it, it certainly deserves a much more conversation than we're able to give it in this blog post. Well, John, I just want to apologize to Jay. There's a lot of, to Jay, uh, thank you, Tony. I want to apologize, Jay. We have a lot of Canadian examples here. Um, and I think, uh, it, I think it's oh, that's, a bit that's, of a back- that's no problem at all. That's a bit of, it's a bit of a backhanded compliment to the U.S. in some ways because of the, um, the fact that there are some very prominent uh, institutions in the U.S. who are leaders in there. And you mentioned one earlier, the Lila, uh, the Lilly School in, in, in Indiana, and, but also like the Stan, at Stanford with the Social Innovation Review and, and, and many others. Exactly. So, so, uh, we, we're certainly like, I'd love to see that with a Canadian institution where we have something that's cited as regularly as the SSIR and other things. So, I'm, I'm thrilled to hear that conversation flowing. I'm, um, I did look up uh, uh, pro-social behavior. Uh, pro-social means behavior is voluntary. Pro-social behavior is voluntary behavior intended to benefit another. So I love it. Now, now I know what better pro-social means, and, I, and it makes perfect sense, Kathy. Thanks for bringing that up. I um, would not have been able to define it, so thank you for yeah, that. Yeah, well, that, you know, the, the, the Internet is so helpful. Um, yeah. May I make a, 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 an observation, too? Yeah. Uh, quickly. So one of the things, you know, I recently, I, I'm a later-in-life learner, too, and did my master's recently, and when I was doing research on the role of philanthropy in collective impact, the was, there was not much research, but the only research that existed was from foundations. And one of my observations was that uh, the term philanthropy is defined differently depending on who is defining it. So I often see foundations really um, defining philanthropy as money that comes from foundations. And um, I think it's something for us to keep in mind that we don't necessarily have a consistent definition of philanthropy. That's a whole other podcast, but a great observation. I think we're actually going to make a whole podcast of just the language that we have. Um, with that, though, I'm also mindful of the time, and I want to make sure that we're that we're sensitive to not only the listeners but also to your time. So, I, I mean, this is clearly we just even we I want we we sort of sat on the top of the iceberg today. So, I'm very interested in opening up additional uh, podcasts around research and particular topics. I want to thank you for that. It's been an interesting discussion. Lots to think about. Surprise! It's a huge topic. Um, so, we will schedule more on on that in the future. I want, I want to thank you all. You've all been great guests. Jay, Kathy, John, Tony, I look forward to when we can have each of you back on the podcast. But before we let you go, I, I want each of you to have a chance to tell us a little bit more about, about yourselves or what you're working on, you know, where people can reach you, um, and what's important to you right now. We're going to start with you, Jay. Anything you want our listening audience to know or think about? And uh, I hope you talk a little bit about Bloomerang. Okay, well, I will mention at least the Bloomerang uh, website. Uh, if you if you type in Bloomerang and uh, uh, go to the website, there is a section uh, for regarding resources. And if you go in the resources, there's a research section. And uh, I'm delighted to say that we have got three or four of the research projects. Uh, ironically, all of them are with Dr. Adrian Sargent and with Jen Chang. Uh, and there's one on great fundraising events. One on relationship one fundraising, one on major gifts, 
uh, and there's a soon-to-be one just about to be published on gift acknowledgments that have all been partially funded by our team at Bloomerang. And so there's some great resources and some uh, easily digestible uh, research projects right there that everybody can find if they just go to that website. And, and Jay, uh, the, the, the website is what? Is it boomerangsoftware.com? Uh, bl- bl- co and then it's forward slash resources, forward slash research. Yeah. If you just Google Bloomerang, you can easily get most of these links. Yeah, 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 we'll go right to it there, and then you'll see it in there. So anyway, and thank you very much for allowing me to be part of this discussion. This is literally the first time I've heard anybody really discuss uh, among several people proper research being done and adding to the body of knowledge, and I think it's a great first step. Well, I'm looking forward to a whole series on, on research, so thank you for that, Jay. Kathy, what do you want people to know? What do you? What's going on in your life? What's important right well, now? Yeah, what's important right now, you know, when I started my consulting practice a little over a decade ago, I really wanted to figure out how to help organizations collaborate in uh, around philanthropy. And uh, 10 plus years later, I'm um, starting to uh, experience that. So in the in the world of social change and social justice, we're, we're starting to see some some shifts. And this notion of collaboration is is beginning to to take hold, and I'm I'm grateful to um, some leaders in Toronto who are who understand the the potential and who are um, starting to come together to work on uh, uh, on collaborative and collective fundraising. And I'm and I can't wait to uh, in a year from now when we've got a little more um, re- some results that we can talk about. So I'm, I find that they, where, really exciting. Where would people find those results when you publish them, Kathy? Or is that just going to be into the market? They well, uh, you can check out kathyman.ca, which is the website, and um, and and it will depend on uh, it'll be it'll be um, you'll see it in different places. But yeah, you can check out kathyman.ca. Wow, what a big uh, big that must feel good to know that they're finally listening. <laughs> it's yeah i mean it's it's just uh the times they are changing so it's uh it, it's lovely to see that's awesome john uh, uh what do you want people to hear about what's going on um you had mentioned a while, uh in the prep call that you had listened to a great podcast recently i don't know if you want to talk about that now or something else but uh tell us what's going on yeah so, so the podcast i'd mentioned was kci's the ask uh, really does a great job of covering um, stuff like anchoring, social proof, fluency, just noticeable differences with regards to uh, to ask strings. But uh, what I wanted to actually cover was encouraging charities and foundations to look into how they can leverage impact investing. So I mentioned earlier our report's coming out uh, this April. We've also got an event in Hamilton on April 24th. So if anyone's interested in learning about it, uh, it's definitely the uh, the time to uh, to look into it, as well as there'll be some thought leaders there uh, you, who you can discuss with, so the Mars Center for Impact Investing and their newly launched SVX. Uh, so please reach out to me on LinkedIn if you want to learn more. Uh, but really, the biggest finding from our research was that uh, there's an immense appetite in uh, in Canada for uh, aligning your uh, your investments with your values, um, but there's a huge uh, knowledge gap right now. So 45% of uh, Canadians uh, had no knowledge of it, 
Um, but yet, fifty-five percent had an interest in doing it. So we do need to uh, to close that gap as we uh, start trying to narrow in on that gap. Uh, I, I think then we'll have more people um, gearing towards this type of investment. Sorry for the little laugh there, John. But I had to laugh at those two stats. Um, uh, I don't know what it is, but I want to do it. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but I'm, I'm in. <laughs> awesome. One thing for the research is we did try to make it as digestible as possible, so we have an infographic as well as a uh, short three-minute video summarizing the other research. So uh, it's accessible for uh, for all, and that'll be coming out on AFP's EWIRE in April. That's great. Well, we'll look forward to that. So uh, it'll be on an EWIRE later in April. Is that what you said? Correct. We just sent that in okay. yesterday, uh, which was April fourth. Uh, so it should be coming out in the next week or two. Great. Well, I'll look for that, and we'll put it in our weekly recap. Tony, we're going to close the show out uh, today with you, um, and you, you have you have the platform. You can uh, you can tell a joke. Uh, you can give us a limerick. Uh, you can do whatever you like. Uh, Vinny, I think uh, um, uh, ninety uh, about seventy five percent of my work is overseas, and about twenty five percent in Canada, and it fluctuates from year to year. But I'm I'm seeing a, a really really disturbing move. Uh, that is occurring in Europe, and and the NGO sector, and all the work it does is 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 um, without being alarmist or without over exaggerating, in many countries is under attack, and is a political movement to the right, which is anti-research, anti-fact, anti-knowledge and is uh, um, looking at uh, uh, assumptions, beliefs, uh, as the truth of the world. So this topic is not, uh, does not come at a, uh, it couldn't come at a better time. Uh, the whole sector uh, globally has a lot of work to do uh, to, um, to further knowledge, of of uh of how we do fundraising to further knowledge of how we do development and further knowledge of 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 philanthropy um there is a um and 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 in parts of the world it's under attack so we have to be really vigilant and and about about what's going on not only in our own countries and here in the west where we live a privileged life but in other parts of the world where that life of privilege uh, is is not common, and uh, and where colleagues of ours working in those countries um, are working in impossible environments and trying to uh, move forward the 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 whole idea of democracy and civil society. So, and at the root of all that is, of course, knowledge, facts that comes from research and thinking and truth. So um, I want to close by perhaps thanking you and and, and your organization for, for 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 bringing us together for this conversation and discussion. Um, it couldn't be more timely. So thank you very much. Thanks, guys. The um, the uh, I, the irony of doing a podcast on research in a a post fact world was not lost on us. And I mm-hmm. uh, I'm hearing today that we we uh, we could. We, we need to dig into this topic a little more if for the only reason to act against that type of activity. So I want to thank all of you for being here with us today. With that, 
Our gift of another brain trust philanthropy powered by Vitrejo has been committed. Well, that's about it for this episode of Brain Trust Philanthropy. I hope you will join us next month when our topic will be the rise of the machine, technology's rapid integration into the nonprofit sector. This is going to be a very special podcast for us. We're doing a live recording on location, a first, but we hope not the last for us. In partnership with AFP Edmonton and Area, we will be doing a live recording at their monthly breakfast event at the Chateau Louis Conference Center in Edmonton. The event is on May the 10th. If you're in the Edmonton area around that time and you want to join us, you can register online at afpedmonton.ca. Joining us will be Winston Pye, a digital content strategist from the University of Alberta. Katie Hobbins, founder and partner at Caden Avenue Communications, and Adam Rosenhart, director of social media strategy at ATB. And, of course, you, our audience. Brain Trust Philanthropy is powered by Vitreo and is produced by Lauren McMurray at Alchemy Communications and by me, Vincent Duckworth. Brain Trust Philanthropy is recorded in beautiful downtown Calgary, Alberta. Follow our show and engage with fellow listeners on Twitter at Powered by Vitreo. You can subscribe to Brain Trust Philanthropy on iTunes or by visiting our website at vitreogroup.ca. Wishing all of you success in your mission, peace in your lives, hope in your hearts. I'm Vincent Duckworth.